Welcome to What's Left to Do. I'm your host, Janelle. So fitting that we're back up this holiday week because I am thankful for your patience while I had to step away and do politics instead of just talking about it (laughs) for a few months. But we back and with another illustrious alum from my alma mater, Mr. Eugene Pergier. Eugene is an independent left media figure with Breakthrough News though his politics never had to have a breakthrough, as it were. They just developed the old-fashioned way. Political parents, bookish curiosity, and organizing. You know, the huge. Today we are back at the People's Forum, the same uh, location that I interviewed such wonderful guests like Margaret Kimberly and Kartik. Today we are here with yet another wonderful person. He is the co-host of Breakthrough News. He's a member of PSL, a former political candidate, I believe, uh, in D.C., fellow bison that doesn't make my head hurt when I hear him talk about politics because he has a coherent <laughs> politic. Ah, that I agree with. He's he's not, you know, his brain hasn't turned to mush yet. Uh, today, <laughs> today uh, we are sitting down with Eugene Perrier. How are you doing today, Eugene? I'm doing well. I appreciate you even thinking of me as oh, someone to talk to. Oh, get out of here. To. Come on. I tried to talk to you last year. It just didn't come together. <laughs> get out of here, this guy. Um, so I don't have a ton of time with him, which makes my heart hurt. So we're going to just... Gonna make the most Dive of it. in, yeah. We're gonna make the most of it. Uh, where'd you grow up, Eugene? Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay, what was it? What was it like growing up in Charlotte, Charlottesville? Well, that's it's just funny because it's so different now than because of obviously the tragic events that happened in 2017, where Heather Hare was killed. Like before then, and I'll go back to what it was like then. But it's just interesting to think about that dichotomy because before then, everyone used to think I was from Charlotte, North Carolina, and people <laughs> would be like, "Charlotte? Oh, you're from Charlotte, right?" People I'd known for like a decade, and I'd be Brace like, also when I Brace, I was interviewing. He's like, I thought he was in North Carolina. I was like, why the why the fuck did you think that? No, he's in New York. And to me, I'm just like Charlottesville, Virginia, You're not right. Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> so it's funny. But now I say, oh, I'm from Charlottesville, and people go, oh, oh, oh yeah. what's it like there? Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, like kind of what you think. I mean, you know, I don't know. It depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, in some ways, Charlottesville is super provincial, right? It's mm-hmm. and more than than now. It's, you know, the sort of county seat, if you will, of a bunch of different counties in central Virginia, relatively small, 40,000 people. It's sort of rule adjacent. Um, So, you know, in that sense, it is sort of almost sort of your classic kind of, certainly your classic college town, which in and of itself is its own reality. But, you know, it has kind of a very outdoorsy sort of feel. So in some ways, there's a lot of things you really appreciate when you're from Charlottesville, like Mm -hmm. the ability to just kind of pick up and, you know, go swimming out in the lake or go hike in the mountains or fish and hunt and all that kind of stuff that we used to do. Sports are everywhere. All of that, which is good. But then, you know, it has sort of the secondary effect where it's a little bit stultifying because... You know, unfortunately, like a lot of places, there's just not that much going on there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's better than some maybe some would say and a lot of people there would say because the university is there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you have a little bit of, I guess, what some people would call culture. But in my (laughs) personal view, both then and now, Uh that also creates like a kind of a conceited reality of like, oh, Charlottesville is so great and it's so much better than other similar sized cities, which, you know, has its own issues to it. But, you know, I would, so I would say in a way it's very constricting if you have a lot of intellectual ambition, but it does have a lot of elements to it that you miss on a daily basis and that are fantastic. Um, And just the small town feel, all those different pieces. And then being in a college town, and I think anybody's from a college town can 100% relate to this. You know, there is that town and gown aspect 
to it, mm. right? And there is the aspect of being like a townie mm -hmm. and having all these people who sort of flood in and out of your town who have a certain sense of superiority about themselves because mm. they're here at this great august university. Um, and then, of course, you know, this is the home of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. Mm -hmm. So everything is like founding fathers, U.S. Revolution, America is great. You know, 24-7, uh, shout out to my guy Henry Winsack, whose father wrote a great book a few years ago, like really coming at Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, obviously the whole town was in an uproar. But, you know, this is the kind of atmosphere of like lionization around founding fathers. So there's a lot of that kind of like America, ex American exceptionalism that's so baked into it. So, you know, it's all kind of... So it's hard to say. I mean, I'm glad but I did grew it, up but there. But did it feel... Okay, why, why are you glad that you grew up there? You know, I'm glad I grew up there because, you know, even though it's a small town, I did feel I do feel like you got a decent... I got a decent amount of interesting experiences. Like what? I think like for, what? Well, I just think to have the opportunity to be in a place that values public education mm. is is huge. And definitely one thing I will say about Charlottesville, whatever else you can say about it, is it, it public education, it was the biggest item in the budget back then. It was definitely valued. You know, the schools... I've, in comparison to a lot of other schools, uh, I think we're quote unquote good. And I don't just mean like the classes were good, but there was a strong sort of encouragement of, of students and a great body of teachers. So, you know, I think a lot of the things that have led me to have a lot of intellectual curiosity as life has gone on really did start because that was nurtured in a lot of ways in the public school system there in a way that I see in a lot of places it, it isn't. So mm -hmm. I would say that's probably the thing I appreciate the most about being from Charlottesville. And I definitely appreciate having lived almost only in urban environments since then, uh -huh. I can definitely appreciate the value of being from a place where just like, you know, you going to jump off a cliff into a quarry is something you do on a regular basis uh. and having a good time, that uh -huh. kind of stuff, being out, being able to go fishing and all those different sorts of outdoor things. Hiking is just a matter of course. Mm -hmm. um, and having that is just something you take for granted. Mm -hmm. And now I don't take those kind of things for granted as much. <laughs> sure. um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was good. But I do think that, you know, to some degree... Um, it's just, there's just not that much going on there, to be honest with you. But did it feel, you said restricting. Did it feel yeah. restricting to you as a child while you were Definitely. growing up there? In what ways? I think, you know, it's restricting because you know that, you don't really know because you're a child and you don't know what's out there in the world, mm -hmm. but you do get the sense that, like, you're not getting everything that's possible. Like, like what? When I was there, it wasn't very diverse. Now, mm -hmm. I will say it's changing now um, mm -hmm. as the city is growing, but you know, and this is not to slight either black people or white people, but back then it was basically just black people and white people. Mm -hmm. you know, the only accent I'd heard is people talking just like this. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so it's like, you know, that you know, but you know there's so much more out there. Mm -hmm. um, but you know you're not really, you don't even really know what the value of it is necessarily. Mm -hmm. But you could, you just get a sense, I think, when you're there that there are other things. And now that being said, probably the older you get, the more you realize that kind of everywhere you go, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of different, you know, I mean, there's people who live in cities like New York where there's all sorts of great cultural events, but if you don't have the right money, if you don't have the right access, right. so, you know, even if it's all around you, it doesn't mean that it's not restricted. Sure. And I think that's something about our society that's real. But no, I do think when you're there, you get the sense of like, you're kind of in this small town and this kind of little bubble and there's probably way more out there. You don't know exactly what it is, but you want to kind of break out and see what's going there. I mean, that's what ended up taking me to Howard University. But, you know, I would say looking back on it, I don't wish I was from somewhere else. Okay. I don't say like, oh, I wish I had grown up here. I wish sure. I had grown up there. Are you there. proud to have grown up in Charlottesville? Uh, proud? I mean, I, I guess. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I I guess yes to a degree, but I don't know. I mean, Why? I don't know Why if I would be squirming? proud. Well, wow. I don't know. I mean, what does it mean to be proud of where you're from in a way? I mean, I'm happy to have been from there. You know, obviously, I appreciate, you know, many of the people I grew up with and grew up around. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I said, you know, I, I think I had, you know, at least some experiences, formative experiences, but that's anywhere, right? So, you know, in some ways, I don't want to slight anywhere else either. I mean, sure. I'm sure if I was from somewhere else, I'd feel like that was probably good too. But yeah, I mean, overall, I definitely am not a Charlottesville hater. I mean, I definitely <laughs> am a fan of the city. Sure. If someone told me they were moving there, I would not try to dissuade them. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, everywhere you, what you want to do in life and where you want to live and where you want to go is, you know, so dependent on what, well, A, what opportunities you have, but B, sort of like what your sensibilities are. Sure. Okay. Um, what did, what did your parents do growing up? My mom was, until very recently, actually, actually the director of Upward Bound at the mm. University of Virginia. Oh, okay. Um, actually, the founder of the Upward Bound program oh, right at the on. University of Virginia. And my dad, well, he had a couple different jobs. Uh, he was the, he was the director of African American Affairs mm. at 
UVA when I was first born, mm-hmm. and then he. Uh, but shortly after I was born, he moved to just being a research professor, mm-hmm. and then he was retired. But he was a professor, either both. You know, he's an administrator and a professor at UVA. A professor of political science. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, did you have an understanding of your parents' politics growing up? Their politics or or ideology growing up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would. You know, I would. I think even beyond my parents, pretty political family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do you of, mean when you say that? I was in a pretty political family. What does that mean for you in your context? Well, I think maybe what it means vis-a-vis everyone else is the conversations around politics were very consistent. Mm -hmm. Um, And definitely that was always something that was deeply discussed, you know, whether it be vis-a-vis the news or people's experiences, you know, whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. the sort of current events things happening in the sort of political world mm-hmm. was always sort of a topic of discussion. So, you know, there was kind of no escaping it really to some degree in sure. terms of getting a sense of, you know, at least when you're old enough to figure it out, getting a sense of where your parents are coming from uh, in terms of these questions that they're talking about. And so, yeah, I would say from a pretty young age, I had a relatively good sense of where my parents stood on most things. Well, I don't know about most things, but the things that I can remember where they stood on for sure. And, and what were some of those things and where did they stand? Well, you know, I think that, you know, I probably am one of the, well, am I one of the few people? I don't know. I'm, I sadly think maybe I'm one of the few people uh, who grew up in a house where being in favor of Palestine, being pro-Palestinian was mm. always big. That was, house, that was like a sure. salient issue in your oh, home yeah, growing definitely. up. And you understood that as a child. Oh, yeah. Definitely. What, how did you understand that issue? Uh, you know, I understood the issue basically from the context of seeing, I mean, I think probably the first thing I can really remember vis-a-vis uh, Palestine was it was in 96, 97, when Netanyahu invaded the West Bank and violated the Oslo Accords, which is obviously a big deal in the news. Sure. And then, you know, talking to my dad about it in particular, sort of like, what is this really about? Mm-hmm. And him just sort of laying out for me the reality of, you know, what it was about, that uh. these are occupied territories, what Israel thought they were doing, the fact that, you know, all of their explanations were, you know, total bullshit mm-hmm. I, I don't I hope i can cuss yeah, of course here you can cuss. um yeah <laughs> to say sometimes the family sh- you know he certainly was pro-palestinian i don't know if he was pushing it on me per se mm-hmm. but it was you know a comprehensive explanation so you know things like that um were there but not just that i mean you just think about different i mean i'm just thinking now just randomly back to things that have happened over time but you know for instance when bill clinton was negotiating with uh kim jong-il you know about north korea and mm. about the nuclear weapons and I have to say, my dad was super pro North Korea. So ah, in what he way? Was, <laughs> he, well, you know, my dad was a lot older, you know, so he could remember. He came of age really right around the time of the Korean War, mm. and he was of draft age, but was not drafted when mm. it first started. Mm. So, you know, from his point of view, uh, and I, you know, thought he was. I certainly thought he was right then. I definitely think he's right now. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality of how North Korea and South Korea, quote unquote, were created mm-hmm. was because the United States had intervened yeah. in this process of decolonization, and that North Korea, whatever problems it might have, uh, was really a representation of uh, of a spirit of resistance to certainly Japanese colonialism, mm-hmm. to imperialism, and was sort of the remnant of this uh, this struggle for Korea to finally emerge from mm. these hundreds of years of colonialism, and that they had a right to their own foreign policy, they had a right to not be demonized, we shouldn't be sanctioning them, and so on and so forth. So uh-huh. he was laying that out for me, you know, as well, for sure. So current events, definitely... I mean, the first strike I probably really can remember, and it actually didn't happen, but almost a strike, uh, was giant food workers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I think they were the only unionized grocery workers in the city. Obviously, it's Virginia, so not a ton of unions. Yeah. Um, but there was this you know, big conversation, because there's not a lot of strikes there either, about, oh my God, there's going to be a strike at this grocery store. And I had said to my mom, because like, we used to go to this grocery store, well, if there's this strike... Uh, are we going to shop there? And, you know, she told me pretty clearly that she would rather starve than cross a picket line. Hey. Um, and so, you That's know, right, and it was like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I don't really need to ask any other questions. I obviously sure. know right then off the bat, like, okay, striker's good. Mm-hmm. The people who they're against, definitely not good. Mm-hmm. You should always be for strikers. Like, that was pretty clear if you'll starve. So, you know, it was like current events, things happening yeah. in the context of the world, things happening locally, mm-hmm. just hearing, either hearing your parents talking about it amongst themselves or other people or them talking directly to you about it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and you know, like I said, the news was always around newspapers, magazines, books. So there was a lot of encouragement, even beyond what people were saying, to just kind of try to be in the know and know what's going on and be willing to ask questions about things like that and have that kind of intellectual curiosity. So even beyond like my parents' explicit politics and like how they felt, there was, I think, a political atmosphere in uh. the sense that it's good to be engaged. It's good to know what's going on. It's mm -hmm. important to sort of follow, you know, the current events, both in, you know, local, state, international, national, all that kind of stuff that I think also kind of just pervades beyond the ideology kind of how you view those questions mm -hmm. if you see them as something that's important from a, a young age. Would you would you say that your your experience and your in your words your political household with your parents was like did you think that that was common like did you think that that was basically how most people in your community were or did you feel kind of like an outlier like I know that we're a little different and like the things that mom and dad talk about are maybe different than what I hear at you know in in whatever social groups were involved in or at church or if you had a religious uh, uh, institution that you were associated with like did you feel like this was this was normal most kids probably live in homes like this or like oh we're real different like what how did you situate that <laughs> i would say in terms of like the importance of politics and being engaged didn't feel all that different i mean there obviously you know you observe there are some people whose parents are just like not political at all. Yeah. There are other people who are like obviously just as engaged and it's just of a big deal. Mm -hmm. Now in terms of actual positions, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say, I guess it depends sort of person to person. I don't think I felt like an outlier in that sense, mm -hmm. but it was definitely clear to me that like not everyone is progressive. Mm -hmm. And on certain questions like Palestine or North Korea, this, which are two just I picked out, yeah. you know, on those you can get a sense like, okay, there's not basically anyone else I really know as a kid, although I've subsequently met more people in Charlottesville who had these views, but sure. there's fewer of us who have these views, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's the case. But on some things like being for unions, mm -hmm. or uh, I'm just trying to think of random things that have happened over the years, you know, as mass incarceration started to be pushed heavily and aggressively in the state of Virginia, the death penalty, things like that, you know, there were a number of different people we were interacting with, uh, you know, across all spheres, my friends, people at my mom's church, people just randomly who you'd meet, who were sort of on the same page. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say I felt like an outlier really per se, and I think I mainly then kind of just conflated it all into one thing, like kind of people who care about politics and people who don't really care about politics. Mm. And there were a decent number of people who, who certainly do. So it didn't feel like an outlier in that sense. So even though you knew people had different political views, I would say trying to put myself in the mind of me as a young person, it was less about like the particular views you were hearing and more like, oh, are these people also interested in politics? So, okay. you know, like my good friend up the street, his family, they were more conservative voted Republican, hmm. but super, super into politics, yeah, you know? So yeah. it was like, even though very different views, yeah. it was like similar kind of culture <laughs> and similar sort of, you know, home intercourse on politics in that sense. I gotcha. Okay. Did you grow up uh, religious or, or observant or? Well, I'm baptized Episcopalian and I, until I was 14, went to Trinity Episcopal Church in Charlottesville, Virginia uh -huh. every single Sunday. Uh -huh. uh, and then when I was 14, my parents said, you could do whatever you wanted to do. And I was like, not going to get up on Sunday. Uh, so <laughs> sure, sure. that was the case. My dad is an AME minister, ah. um, or was. He passed in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, sort of, you know, obviously some overlap there between Episcopalian and AME. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely... A lot of my formation, you know, mm -hmm. sort of uh, as a young person definitely came out of that. I don't consider myself particularly religious these days. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say I'm more likely to go to church now when someone invites me, uh, sure. you know, or if someone who I know can really preach mm -hmm. is is there. Um, you know, that's one thing I will say about not living in D.C., uh, is the Howard services. Yeah. And it's like, oh, man, I know that cat can preach. So yeah, let me that's go over right. there. Um, I saw Jeremiah Wright fantastically once at Howard. Um, but that's a whole separate story. But anyway, um, yeah, so, you know, I wouldn't consider myself particularly religious now, but I definitely grew up in a very religious atmosphere. You know, my mom, my grandmother, my aunts, my dad. I mean, uh, yeah, my brother is also uh, relatively religious. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say, like, definitely growing up, sort of the black Christian tradition, mm -hmm. big part of, of, of my life. You know, when your dad's a minister, he never had a church, but, you know, and his dad had been a minister. Uh. You know, that's just going to be there all the time. My dad had been very involved in the civil rights movement. He'd also worked with Malcolm X. Huh. So, you know, sort of the sort of black liberation theology, mm -hmm. uh, sort of James Cone style understanding of black religious, you know, not like you were reading from the book, but, you know, that kind of understanding of how religion certainly relates to the black community uh -huh. and also how it relates to social justice causes is definitely, I think, a big topic of discussion. And I think a big element of the values of most people in my family. And, you know, I think every more or less everyone in my family is relatively progressive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, 
I, I don't think that's the only reason, but I think it does play a role is that sort of Christian social gospel underpinning. So definitely I would say sort of in my initial, certainly my initial years, and then even, you know, moving on beyond that, it's a big part of the, the da- your daily life, really. Mm. When, you said, when you said that it was a big part of your formation, ex- explain what you mean by that. It's like, explain your, your conception of, of God or the divine or, or, or what that is supposed to do to or for people. Mm. It's a good question. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that sort of the my God is a just God ah. is is sort of the element of it. I mean, I think both of my parents were not the type of people who, you know, it's not like sort of a, a every single thing that's happening, no matter what is good or bad, is mm-hmm. being, is not like a predestination kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad used to always say, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was definitely, there was a lot of agency that was built mm-hmm. into what they were saying, but that ultimately that... Uh, you know, the, even though the rain does fall on the just and the unjust alike, yeah. that basically God is a God of justice. Mm. And that if you claim that you're doing the quote unquote Lord's work, you're only doing the Lord's work if you're treating people well. Uh. And the sort of golden rule aspect of how you approach life. Mm. So it was very much sort of a cultural moral value system more mm. than sort of a, a sort of far away separate deity thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it was more about sort of you know, your godliness is carried in how you act, uh-huh. not in what you believe or what you read or whether not your or not personal you go to piety. church or anything like that. Yeah. Like you can never go to church and still be very, you know, in much in the footsteps of what God would want you to be doing. Mm-hmm. You could be at church every week and be trifling. So, <laughs> uh, which, you know, it, certainly we know that to be true. So yeah, it was definitely much more about, you know, my father especially was very focused on the sort of traditional Old Testament gospels as well. Mm. So, you know, so it was very much about that of taking an understanding of the sort of essence, perhaps, or I think at least what they felt the essence of the Bible was. I think other people obviously have different views of that, um, rather than sort of the in particular sort of line by line, uh, you know, if you're not living by this kind of thing. Yeah, it's not that sort of thing. So, you know, I think it was a big part of the moral value structure that I was able to bring in that I think many people who are not religious also work from similar sorts of moral values. But I think that in and of itself, you know, I can say my mom especially, very open person, kind of get along with anybody sort of piece. And I think that kind of, you know, sort of human open value structure is a big piece of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely something that pervaded a lot of my my childhood years. Mm. How would uh, how would your family and or community have described you as a child? Oh, Jesus, up? I don't even know. I'm, I'm afraid to know. <laughs> no, I don't, don't want to ask them. I don't want to have any Why? thoughts about that. I just, who knows? I hope it's good. That's all I can th- say. Oh, stop it. What do you think they would say? <laughs> Oh, Whether man. you'd like think, it or not, but what do you think they? Mm, how do you think they describe you? That I talk too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I no, in a curious I'm, I'm, I'm or like joking, in a smartassy kind of way. Oh, okay. no, in a, in, uh-huh. a, in a curious way, uh-huh. I think. Uh-huh. But no, I think probably most people would. Oh Lord, how would they describe me? You know, j- curious, mm-hmm. not studious, but bookish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opposite of studious. <laughs> I, I, there's no one who would call me a good student. Um, yeah. You know, but certainly bookish, intellectual, you know, curious, fun, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, just generally affable. I don't know what they would say. Mm. But I think probably if there's anything that probably maybe set me, not even apart, because I know other people like this too, so I don't want to slight my own friends. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think definitely bookish and, you know, intellectually curious. Okay. Ah, interesting. And how many, you're one of how many? So I've got two half sisters and a half brother. Okay. So yeah, so my I have a brother and a sister that we have the same father, and then a sister the same mom as me. So it's four of us all told, but we're not all. Were you the baby? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so you were spoiled. Yeah, both my parents were married once before. Um, I don't know if I was spoiled. Yeah, but, okay, yeah, no. I think yeah, okay, you were definitely well, you, spoiled. You, you can ask them what they think about that. <laughs> um, did you have an understanding? Maybe not as such, but did you have an understanding of like class growing up and like what your family's like class status was? Like, did you think like every kid basically lives like me or like I have it way better than like a fuck ton of kids or like, wow, there's so many people doing better than us. Like how did oh, you understand I that? I had a very strong understanding because my parent, both of my parents had a strong understanding of class. So they were making things clear, mm. you know, straight up. I mean, one, when you're living in a small town like that, mm-hmm. you do know a lot more people from sort of, cause you know, everyone's going to the same schools best about, yep. you know what I'm saying? Even there's a handful of private schools, but you know, even that in and of itself gives you like some sense mm-hmm. of like who's doing, you know, that some people are doing better. Some people are doing worse. Some people, 
people are middling. So you get that kind of sense just from your own social experience. Mm -hmm. But no, I definitely think that my parents, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, the way we view class in America is so fucked up and, yeah. and, and incorrect. Correct. But let's just use the typical American understanding. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we were solidly middle class, sure. if you want to say it like that. Yeah. And I think from my parents' point of view, it was important for them to stress that, like, that's not just how it is. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And that there are a lot of people through no fault of their own sure. who are not doing as well. And you have to understand that like a lot of the things that happen in life mm -hmm. are really based on essentially how much money you have and the opportunities uh. you're given and how a lot of the things that I was able to do, mm -hmm. you were only able to do because of, you know, where my parents were able to get mm -hmm. and they were only to get there for X, Y, Z reason. And then, you know, my mom being the director of Upward Bound, which, you know, for those who don't know who are listening to this, Upward Bound is essentially a, they call it a college enrichment program. But basically... You know, it, it helps people who are technically, uh, statistically, let's say, less likely to make it into college. Mm -hmm. And it gives them a whole range of different assistance to help them get into college. Tutoring, college tours, mm -hmm. SAT prep, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, you end up spending a lot of time around people who are from lower income backgrounds. Mm -hmm. and How did you, you understand that, though, as a kid? Not through how your mother described it, but like if you were, for instance, I, I presume, I imagine that, you know, sometimes you would, you would, you know, if, if there was no childcare, you know, you'd have to go to work with your mom, you know, for, and hang out for a couple of hours as she was doing work and probably got to see, when you were younger, probably got to see older kids who were in and out of the, the, the office or facility where she was. How, so how did you understand that? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, the number one way you understand it is just like, it's great when you get a chance to do that because you're like a young kid with yeah. older kids. Yeah. So that's And fun. you feel cool. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> yes, I'm cool with the older kids. But no, I think the number one thing I've understood as a kid is it means you have less opportunities. Mm. And it's like, okay, obviously there's, you know, these are, I'm having fun having time with these kids, but just because their parents don't like make a lot of money, like a friend of mine's sister, let's say, who's the same age they need this program to have SAT prep, mm -hmm. where my friend's sister is just going to have it no matter what, right? Because mm -hmm. their parents can afford it. So it becomes very clear because you see the things people are getting from Upward Bound, mm -hmm. and you can see how other people get those things just because mm -hmm. their parents have money. So I think the number one thing that it strikes you is it's like, oh, wow, like when the middle class kids from high school are like, we're all going to go on our college visits with our parents. Like I'm on the college visit with these kids from Upward Bound who wouldn't be here without Upward Bound. And you get a very clear sense of like, whatever else you do that like the amount of money you have mm -hmm. is the determinant of the opportunities you get. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing, honestly, as a kid to have seen mm -hmm. because not only is is it one hundred percent true, yeah. but I think it helps you like kind of order why things are happening when you go to different places. So mm -hmm. like it's was not lost on me moving to DC. Like, you know, you go to Southeast. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, well why is it that they're everything you know people don't have access to groceries and everything yeah. well they don't have a lot of money and if you don't have a lot of money mm. they don't do things for you there's not opportunity huh. so i have to say you know one i think upward bound is a is a great program mm -hmm. but for someone who is just kind of adjacent to upward bound it's a really important it was a really important learning experience quite mm. frankly because it just gives you a sense one of the humanity of all people mm. and how like unbelievably unfair it is uh. that like just because someone doesn't have access to like a high paying job mm -hmm. They don't have access to basic educational resources, mm. you know, things that honestly, even today, it's it was shocking to me then, it's shocking to me now mm -hmm. that something as simple as like a tutor to help you do better on the SAT is like extremely out of reach financially for, you know, a lot let's say kids. one third of the people in my high school, right? Uh -huh. um, and in a place, you know, you go to Baloo almost everybody, right? That's uh -huh. a high school in, in DC. DC. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, this is unbelievable. And mm -hmm. it just seems so unfair because mm -hmm. when you're a kid, especially, mm -hmm. you see more of the human side of people. Yeah. So it's like, you're just having fun hanging out with the older kids. And the older you get, you think like, wow, like this is, what a what an unjust system, you yeah. know. So I'm I'm happy to have had those experiences, quite frankly, mm -hmm. um, because it really is it was informative, I think, about class mm -hmm. and about the real meaning of class and the real human impacts of class and the dehumanization mm. of capitalism of individuals. Like, you know, just the the shame people feel yeah. because they don't have access to something basic. Mm -hmm. Um and then they internalize or, it. Yeah, as you know, because they, they, they don't know something. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, you, I mean, this is obviously something that's not new. There's you no know, like yeah. sofa and couch and how that plays out. And it's just like that element of dehumanizing people is 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 terrible. And I think you see that a lot with education. I mm -hmm. think it's like a really kind of at the coal face way to see the real impacts of class in our society that mm -hmm. it has on people. So you know, in a way, um, it was valuable for a lot of other reasons. I mean, you know, I'd say it's pretty rare. That because I would always go on the college trips with them. So I, by the time I was getting ready to apply to college, 
I'd already seen like 150 colleges, yeah. you know? And that has a huge impact on what you value uh. in colleges because, you know, I've, uh, most people think, what is the best college I can get into? Mm -hmm. And like, let me do that. Mm -hmm. Or what is the most affordable place I could get into? And it's considered that those two things are like total antipodes. Yeah. And I was able to learn pretty early that like a lot of it really depends on what do you want to do? Yeah. Where do you want to be? What do you want to study? Mm -hmm. um, and it gave me a much wider view of like what college was and what it could be, mm -hmm. which was, you know, tremendously helpful in figuring out, you know, where I wanted to go. So that's sort of just personally, but that in and of itself was a huge benefit. So, you know, obviously there were other fringe benefits, but to go go back to your original point about class that was an, a big introduction to uh -huh. what class really meant uh -huh. what did why did you ultimately choose howard when you know you'd 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 gotten you'd got, you'd had the opportunity to kind of have a, a wide purview of you know different colleges and what they offer what the environment would be what what you'd be able to pursue why howard well a few different things mm -hmm. One, I knew I wanted to be in an urban area. I've been living in, you know. <laughs> you say, I don't need no more creeks. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's funny because, like, people who were like, if we were, if someone was in here from Buckingham County, which is close to Charlottesville, mm -hmm. and I was like, Charlottesville is country, they'd be like, nah, Charlottesville, that's the city, right? <laughs> so I don't want to overplay it, you know, for all of my people who are, you know, listening from Wyoming or whatever. Like, he's, <laughs> he's not country. But, you know, ultimately it is country there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I wanted to be in an urban area that was, well, I don't know, because, you know, Hampton Roads is is yeah. urban, but it's real country. Yeah, that's right. Hampton, Norfolk people, I'm sorry, y'all are country. That's correct. Um, that's but, just the truth. <laughs> so I wanted to be somewhere that at least I perceived to be more cosmopolitan. Why? Um, because I figured, similar to what I said in the beginning, right? Like, you knew you were missing something, but you didn't know exactly what it was. Okay. So I figured, okay, cool. Like, I want to find out what I'm missing. I want to see what, figure out what, what that is. Ah, okay. And so uh, that was one. Mm -hmm. Two, I wanted to go to an HBCU for a lot of different reasons. I mm -hmm. mean, one, I'd visit a lot of HBCUs. So yeah. like, I had a good sense of what HBCUs meant as sort of culturally, psychologically, if you will. What did that mean to you culturally and psychologically? Well, I think what it means to me and what I hope it means to many others. No, no, no. What did it mean to you at that time? At Not that now. time? Yeah, yeah, Well, yeah. you know, I think a place that actually understood and valued that the the sort of existence of racism in the world and the role of black people within it. Mm -hmm. And that were – I mean, there are a lot of negative things, of course – I think the more of us who are HBCU grads, mm -hmm. we often look on sort of like, oh, this, that, and the third, da, 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 which is all true and all relevant. It's romantic, but I, but yeah. I do think when I compare like my experiences, and I think at that time I did have an awareness of this because almost everyone in my family had gone to an HBCU, mm -hmm. is when I talk to people I know who go to PWIs, I'm often surprised at how surprised they are, mm -hmm. how racist it is when they got into the job market. Ah. And because you know, you think like, oh, I went to like Columbia and like mm -hmm. now I'm going to be out here. Mm -hmm. And whatever else you can say about HBCUs is they pretty much will let you know, <laughs> like, just because you are here doesn't mean you are not black. And as soon as you get out there, That's right. everyone probably is going to be racist. Yeah. And no, everyone is going to judge you based off you being like the token black person it's, in the yeah, place. Yeah. And you just got to understand that. And be uh, ready for it. And be ready for yep. it. And, you know, I was I was then and am now like a big history nerd and a big history buff. So, yeah. you know, HBCUs are going to have a big focus on black history and things like that that I was already interested in. Um, so, again, I wanted to be in a city. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to be in an HBCU. Mm -hmm. I went to Howard for a visit and I really liked how uh, diverse it was. It was mm -hmm. so many people. I went on like, well, you know very well. Yes, it was like a spring day hey, on the yard. That's it. I, and I don't know if it was like the first day, but it was that like first week on the yard uh -huh. feeling. Uh -huh. um, and just to see people in the African clothes and the Caribbean lilts and the voices yeah. and people with, you know, T-shirts and sweatshirts from all over the country. I was like, oh, this is like really, this is all sorts of people. Like, this yeah. is cool. I like how it feels. This I like the, the whole vibe. black world. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, I have a lot of family in the D.C. area. Uh -huh. So, you know, I, it's cool. You know, I have cousins, aunts. My sister was living there. Uh -huh. My grandmother was living there at the yeah. time. So it was like an extra bonus to be there is mm -hmm. that you also have your family that you can, you know, be around and spend time around, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, and also helpful when you want to do laundry and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, right. So, yeah, like kind of all those things coming together um, was what really made me go to Howard specifically and yeah I, I definitely don't regret it mm. when you left for school what was your family and or community's dream for you like was were you supposed to go off and be the first doctor in the family were you supposed to go off and be the lawyer like did they have a specific idea for you if they did they didn't tell me huh, okay. um i so it, yeah they might have but they didn't really tell me so i think you weren't under pressure i don't i wasn't under pressure to choose any particular career okay. i think honestly to be frank with you i think my parents are 
just happy I went to an HBCU. Ah. Um, and like that was enough. Like, great, you're going to an HBCU. Sure. That's going to be fine. But no, I think they were just hoping I would find something that was interesting to me, notable to me, that you know I could make into some sort of career somehow, some way. But yeah, I didn't really feel a lot of pressure. I was like one of the like. One percent of Howard students that was undecided as a freshman. Uh, um, so I you was, didn't have a clear vision for like what it is that you wanted to study or quote be in you know as a grown up as an adult. When nah, you not really. Yeah. And I just kind of felt like if this isn't the time to figure it out, mm-hmm. like year one, like why? I I basically felt like I don't really know anything really. Yeah, like I yeah. know some about the world. And I know some of what's going on, but I just want to kind of walk into this and yeah. like see what's out here. Take random classes, see what I can find that's interesting. So you know, in the back end. That definitely did not help me because <laughs> I was just like taking interesting stuff in the course book, sure. not necessarily like the A block or whatever. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Now, if there's one thing I could do ever again, I would have just done English right away. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh, uh-huh. There's a few things I would have done. But anyway, it was cool because it was like, all right, let me just see what's out here, what's going on. Yeah. I ultimately became a history major um, in the second semester of my second year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was just kind of like, let's... Let's see what happens. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, because it's another thing. You go to a lot of colleges, you see a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of jobs in the world. There's a lot of different things you could do. So I've had very little experience with most of them. Um, you know, I was lucky to know some lawyers, know some doctors. So I have some of that. But like, you know, I don't know. I don't know any. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of things you don't know, and you sure. don't know what you don't know. So uh, I don't think I knew any like physicist or anything like mm-hmm. that, or mm-hmm. you know, I don't whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. anyway, I was going into it just kind of figuring. I'm just going to kind of take it where it takes me and mm-hmm. just see what seems interesting and and hopefully it'll all work out. Okay. How how what describe your your undergraduate experience and how that molded shaped it, shaped shaped it. How that molded shaped or shifted you? Like what was your experience at Howard mm. like? Mm. Yeah, it was interesting because I was there over a long number of years because I was like in and out of college in the time that I was Why? there. Um, I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to go on a college path. Like once I learned more about careers. Really? So it was like a couple times I left looking for different, you know, jobs at different times. I was trying, at one point I was trying to get into a few apprenticeships. Mm-hmm. Um, at another time I was seeing if I could be a city worker. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, wait, wait. What, but what was the, what was the impetus for you kind of jumping, jump, like thinking like, mm, maybe I don't need to, to finish school. Like what were, what were, what were the things that led to that? Sure. I would say, you know, ultimately it's just a realization that you can't really, you can't really just say just because you have a bachelor's degree, you're going to end up in a certain place. Because sure. you can have a bachelor's degree and like not be doing well yeah. in terms of income, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And so my my feeling was like, okay, what can I really do that is sustainable that you know, can generate... No, 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 no. Because you're glossing over this without, without, without really answering the question how I need you to answer it. Okay. What, but what was, the, what, what was the encounter? What was the experience that had, that, that had this light bulb go off like... Okay, a bachelor's degree doesn't guarantee me any anything, so maybe it's not necessary. Like, what was it that did that to you? I don't know if there's one singular experience. No, it's it's just, you know, it's experience in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the more you're in the world, the more you see that things are going on, you recognize that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with college, nothing wrong with graduate school, I don't have anything against it, but if you look at just like, oh, I'm just going to do my four years, Mm -hmm. and like, then everything's going to be fine, Mm -hmm. you're going to be behind the eight ball, there's no doubt about that. And there's a whole range of things that exist out there that are not bachelor's degree type things, that are also still very worthwhile, very sustainable jobs. Mm -hmm. So why would I only lock myself into one subset of, of of things. Why would I not explore other things? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're living in a city that has a huge access to apprenticeships mm-hmm. and you know what's there's nothing wrong with being a plumber or being nothing an electrician. So yeah. why would you not explore that? Why would you not start to look yeah, into no, 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 what I understand. I understand no, no, I hear you. I understand that argument on its merits, but like you were the son of a professor, two college educated yeah. parents. So that was clearly the expectation. But 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 was that the expectation? I don't know. I mean I think that that is certainly where my parents ended up but I don't think I really grew up in a family that didn't value sort of like quote unquote non-college educated skilled work skilled work I mean my dad worked his way through graduate school working in a steel plant so you know I never grew up in an atmosphere where it was like an end all be all Mm -hmm. kind of like this is the only way to have value sort of thing so I was never carrying that with me so that's why it wasn't that difficult for me to really leave and explore different things Um, but why ultimately did you decide to stay or finish your degree because everything else didn't work out like what are the other things that didn't work out I didn't get into any of the apprenticeship programs which ones did you try for 
all of them. Electrician, mm-hmm. operating engineers, plumbing, mm-hmm. just a bunch of them. But Why you didn't know, you get into any of them? Is there like a test you failed? Or? It's not a test you failed, but it's like these are like the most competitive jobs in the metro area of uh, D.C. Uh. because they're the only working class, like, well, you know, quote unquote working class jobs, non-college educated jobs mm-hmm. you can get mm-hmm. that are going to pay you a living. legitimate amount of money, yeah, like yeah. a real truly living wage. So it's really, I think a lot of it is just truly law of averages. And I subsequently learned that, you know, most people who get in the plumbing apprenticeship it's like you apply once and you have to apply like multiple times over like six or seven years because it's just they're limiting the spots obviously Mm -hmm. it's an apprenticeship and it's just so many people trying to Hmm. to get in there Mm -hmm. um and the same thing with working for dc government Mm -hmm. um and certainly in general but certainly in some of the things i was looking at is it's like you know just law of averages you know you're not it's it's difficult to get in so if you only apply once you know it sometimes even twice the chance of you getting it so at that point it was like all right well bet like you know cool i'm gonna just go back and finish my degree uh-huh. and we'll see where it ends up after that but you know i was like in and out it wasn't like long periods because at howard at least at that time mm-hmm. if you if you left as long as you came back within two years mm-hmm. um you didn't have to reapply you gotcha. could just come back so it was like you could be gone for a year and then come back and it was like no issue mm-hmm. so i often would like come back and do like one or two classes in a semester just to like keep myself in there so i experienced howard over a long period of time how, how many years did it take you to get your? i think it was nine all told okay um and so yeah it's you i in a way i appreciated the latter couple years that Mm -hmm. I was there a little bit more Mm -hmm. Um, and I think maybe just because I was a little bit older so Mm -hmm. it was easier to like I don't know appreciate the fact that it's you know a good opportunity to be able to sit in a class and and learn Mm -hmm. you know all day with with scholars that you can talk to Um, that certainly is is cool but yeah so I mean how did it shape and change me I guess to go back to your original question I mean I think definitely it was like were there things that what I'm trying to get at is were there things were there things that you started thinking about differently or that were there new things that came into view that like you had not considered or experienced or understood mm. like were there like I mean this is everyone who goes fucking Howard you know yeah. you 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 in my experience and many other people's experience like I I I had a I had a completely new understanding of of myself as an African you know yeah. as a result of you know taking classes with Dr. Carr um mm. uh, I had a completely new understanding of you know the psychosocial kind of I don't know formations of our community sure. taking classes with Dr. Harrell like were there like what what um, kind of like blew your mind or, you know, just like opened you up to a whole new understanding of the world, yourself, your community, the diaspora, like whatever. Well, they're way more black Republicans than I thought. Yeah, <laughs> that call themselves Democrats, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, that was ha! that was one. Uh-huh. Um, I do think <laughs> that it definitely was eye-opening from the point of view of like the diasporic mm. reality to it and mm-hmm. like what are both the connections and the differences, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. because I think that for sure I had never experienced any of the tension between say Africans and African Americans. Hmm. Um, that was the first time I'd ever really encountered that and of course like kind of my only relationship to Africa was, you know, sort of a more pan-African thing from people I knew in Charlotte sure. with that kind of view. Um, so that was, I, I think, I, it was a lot to learn there, I think, because it sort of gave me a very unique sense of, like, what the 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 experience had been for black people here in, in the so-called United States um, and how that contrasted. But then the reverse is also true, right, mm-hmm. is, like, seeing the commonality, quite frankly, yep. between so many African-descended peoples, um, the sort of way we've ended up, the mm-hmm. pillaging and colonialism and neocolonialism in Africa, you know, the fact that all across the Americas, black people seem to always be more or less at the lowest rung yep. by and large. Like that also is powerful, I think, to mm-hmm. see like that sense of a international connection for sure. Mm-hmm. I think that definitely, you know, I mean, we were talking about the issue of, of class. Mm-hmm. I Certainly, it's a small percentage number of people in terms of the so-called black bourgeoisie. Yeah. But you do but get a better They sense assert themselves. In a huge way. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Charlottesville has successful black people, don't get me wrong, sure. but there's not, like, rich black people yeah. in the same way that, like, Atlanta, Chicago, yeah. and places like that have, yeah, New York yeah. have. So, like, that was definitely eye-opening, you know, to meet, like, people who were, like, you know, I was in this one class once, and this girl was saying something about how she was, someone was making fun of her, I guess, because they knew her, and mm-hmm. they were like, oh, you're rich. 
And she was like, I'm not rich. And so the professor goes, well, what kind of car do you drive? And she was like, oh, and whatever year it was, it was like that year Mercedes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And everyone was like laughing. She was like, what, what, what? <laughs> and she was like, that's not that expensive a car. Both my brothers have one too. And of course, we're just like really laughing Girl. at that point. Uh-huh. And she was just, it was like, she was just oblivious to the fact that like every half the people in there are like, that's like my parents' salary right now. Yeah, but, that's right. You know, so that was interesting too, because mm-hmm. it just is like a whole kind of different, and not in really a negative way. I yeah, it's like, I didn't like anybody, but that was certainly sort of the... It was a new experience. Yeah, the sort of multiplicities of blackness becomes uh, clear to you. Like, uh-huh. it's one thing to know something intellectually, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But quite frankly, like, it's a very limited type of, of situation in Charlottesville. Yeah, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. You have some successful black people, and even that is quote-unquote successful. I mean, like, financially sure. wealthy. And even that is, like, a very small subset of people. Sure. And so most black people are working-class people, poor people, low-income folks. Um, so you don't get that kind of range. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's not a lot of folks from Africa and the Caribbean, so you don't get that kind of range. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you're in one part of the country, so you don't meet people from all around, which that, actually, I have to say, was one of the coolest things mm-hmm. about being at Howard. I thought was, you know, now it's like... Everything's become so homogenized musically, culturally. Yep. But that was like the tail end of when it was like an Oakland culture, a New York yep, culture, a Chicago right. thing. Texas. At Houston. Yes. And it was like, that was so cool because uh-huh. you had seen like a little BT, a video, da 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 da. da. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was, you know, I remember the first time I, we went to like a club and people were just like going dumb. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> yes. And they were like, this is what we do in Oakland. Yeah. And like, that was cool. So yeah. like that, you know, so seeing that kind of the, the multiplicities of blackness mm-hmm. was something that, you know, one, I think it does affect you just in terms of the depth and the the breadth of your own culture that it yeah. opens you up to. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely, you know, the the old saying, the all skin folk and kin folk, <laughs> you know, it gives you that 110%, mm-hmm. which is very useful, uh, I think, moving on in life. Um, but it was culturally, like, definitely super, super enriching. And I would definitely say my interest in Africa as a continent is 100%. Like, I was interested in Africa to some degree before I went to Howard, but I became, like, very interested in African history, especially mm-hmm. um, in African cultures, which is something I still am today. And that was definitely sparked by just being introduced to this, like, multiplicity uh, uh, multiplicities of blackness to keep using that phrase at the time. So mm. yeah, that definitely played a big role. I think it definitely shaped me. I think it gave me a good sense of you know sort of space and place, like who you are and why you ended up there to some degree. Mm. Um, you know, and and I think it helped ground me. You know, in a lot of ways about who I really was. And, and what? How, what do you mean when you say that? I think it just it's it's a place that you can since it's all black people just about. Mm-hmm. I think it actually and this I think is actually better than most PWI. I I personally would not advise a black young person in high school to go to a PWI. Correct. I I, really, I truly feel that. Correct. Way. Because how it's it's difficult to find who you, find even partially who you are. Yeah. And to feel like you can explore your own. You know, like if I'm not into anime or whatever, but there was a kid on my floor who was like super, super into anime. And, you know, in the context of, you know, what society tells us blackness is, Mm -hmm. at a PWI, you got to you're going to be under more pressure to pretend to be X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And the the movies and the music mm-hmm. and the TV shows and, like, blackness. Like, that's have always been my critique of a lot of, like, black cultures on PWI campuses is a lot of it feels so defensive. Yeah. And, and, it's, <laughs> and it's of who they are. And I understand that yeah. because you feel like you have to protect yourself, yeah. rightfully so. Yeah. And everywhere you go, people are making these ridiculous assumptions. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're there for affirmative action. You're there for this. You must be from this type of background. Mm-hmm. Or you must not know these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So it's it makes sense. Yeah. And I'm not, like, against it but it's you know seeing that Mm -hmm. at uva and it's changed a lot of uva Uh and so black people from uva recently i know you're gonna say oh he's doing too much but when i was a kid it was like there was a black dorm it was a black bus stop Mm -hmm. black people took all the same classes you know and it was just like it was almost like they weren't at the university right and so anyway i just say that to say you know my buddy on my hall who's like super into anime he gets to be an anime loving kid yeah. you know and, and rocking it. a Goku shirt and yeah. doing his thing he doesn't have to pretend to be something that he isn't to uh-huh. fit into this what this or what be this... too much of one thing to to be able to fit someone else's conception of, of him exactly yeah. so it's yeah. like if you you know want to be into whatever Afrocentric cultural practice you yeah. can do that if you want to just do whatever you were doing before you can do if that you if you want to pretend to be a trap nigga because right, you we can... have this also like <laughs> my Matt you're in college that's I, fine no without without <laughs> without a doubt one of the biggest topics of discussion in the dorm first yeah. year is the so called fake thugs yeah because um, what are we doing there was this one kid who I went there with who uh, 
he looked a lot like T.I. Mm-hmm. And he was from Atlanta. I know exactly yes. who you're talking about. And so he like yep. cultivated this whole personality as like he was T.I. And one day my roommate just came back in laughing, just dying laughing. And I was like, you got to tell me what this is about. Yeah. And he was like, you know, so-and-so. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, yo, I just found out that his dad owns like the fourth largest construction company in Atlanta. <laughs> so we just started dying laughing because like, you know, he like he had such an affectation. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You could do that. Yeah. And it was what it was. And I feel like you could be the type of black person self-defined mm-hmm. or culturally defined. Mm-hmm. You could be fitting a stereotype That's right. or you could be creating your own stereotype for yourself or how you want to be. Yep. And it was like, it, you could do that. You yeah. could find that. It's and I felt good. like you didn't feel a lot of pressure to conform to what society was telling you blackness had to be. Uh-huh. So, you know, obviously we live in a capitalist society, so almost everyone starts to fit into an archetype yeah. because that's they kind of force us into different archetypes, you mm-hmm. know. And HBCUs all have an archetype. Oh, like, yeah. I was, you know, doing a lot of activist work. Mm-hmm. So I'm. Were you? Was you a HBCU. power hall, like, denizen? I think so. Yeah, you know, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So, uh-huh. you know, definitely it was like, you know, there's an activist meme, yeah. you know, but still, even with that, and you, you find a lot of acceptance too, or I found a lot of acceptance from people. You know, even who weren't really in that space, yeah. but who appreciated what you were doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So even though it was kind of a meme in a way, yeah. um, it was still like people could appreciate it. So and you know how it is at Howard. Yeah. There's always gonna be one big protest every year. Yeah. And at I, least at least one. It's been like fifteen years, I guess, since I've been there, and I still will run into people and they'd be like, Do you remember that one time? <laughs> da, 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 da. And I'm like, Yes, I do remember the one time you did something. a hundred percent. And I'm glad you Catch still remember it. That shape. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, and I'm glad that you still appreciate that we did it. But yeah. I still remember when you didn't come to the thing that I invited to you next but yeah. that's okay we all get there that's on right. our own speed and our own time but yeah so you know that also at Howard especially the history of the you know NAG and then SNCC and the civil rights movement that in and of itself is big and I would say being able to engage with professors who had been around during that time mm-hmm. was also very helpful because it just gives you I mean you know I had a couple classes with Dr. Rowe uh, in the history department mm-hmm. and it was amazing this third class I think I took with him a second class anyway we were just chatting one day after the class and it turned out that he was supposed to be in the car with Ralph Featherstone and Che Payne huh. from SNCC when it was bombed and they were killed ah. uh, and he had I forget exactly what he said but he got called away and didn't go into it and I was like that's deep so yeah, you know to be able yeah. to like exchange and have those sorts of experience Dr. Carr you've already yeah. mentioned yeah. Um, who is always encouraging you know to, to me and others to really keep going in that vein so yeah I mean I think it was the kind of place that I don't know if you really ever know who you truly are, right? We're always learning and growing yeah, through life. But you get but a you just, shot at figuring yeah, it out. You felt the like best you shot at figuring exactly, it out as a black exactly, person at yeah. a HBCU. I got you. Our marvelous Eugene transitions from the hilltop at Howard to independent media in New York with some eye-opening lessons organizing the community along the way in part two of our interview. You can listen to part two right now over at patreon.com slash what's left to do. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what's left to do. If Patreon isn't your thing and you still like to support this work, by all means, <laughs> feel free. You can go to what's left to do.com slash support and leave us a donation in the tip jar. Okay, see you over on Patreon. Mm-hmm.